When it comes to these companies, they never learn from their errors in developing countries. So when it like hate speech in Myanmar, didn't learn anything from that. Now they're dealing with the same thing, but at a much larger scale in the US and Europe. Not only that, but they're also putting massive resources toward it in the US and Europe when they put minimal resources to it in Myanmar, even after the UN said you know, flat out that Facebook had contributed to genocide there, or ethnic cleansing, I think was the term that they used. Nevertheless, I think really, not only does it echo previous content moderation debates, but it, to me, and I think to anyone working on this at an international scale, it always just feels like, like everybody in the U.S. is just a little bit behind the debate. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 30th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Kate Klonick and I spoke with Gillian C. York, the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She's been an activist working on issues of internet freedom and free expression for many years, which gives her a unique perspective on the debates over disinformation and platform governance that we talk about on this podcast. She and Kate discussed Facebook's oversight board, the entity designed to provide accountability for the platform's content moderation decisions, whose development both Jillian and Kate have watched closely, and about which Kate has a new article out. We also discussed why Jillian thinks content moderation is broken, what technology companies could do better, and how discussions of platform governance tend to focus on the United States to the exclusion of much of the rest of the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 30th, Jillian C. York on free expression on a broken internet. So Jillian, thank you so much for joining us. To start off, you've been working in this space for a long time. Can you just walk us through sort of how you got involved in it and what kind of work you've been doing over time? Sure. Uh, So I got involved in working on freedom of expression about, God, 13 years ago, um, I was living in Morocco at the time and trying to become a writer, working on travel books as as a freelancer, when I kind of stumbled by chance upon the blogger community there. Started my own blog and then got involved with the Global Voices, which is this incredible project that's still in existence, um, but which at the time was really intending to kind of cover what people around the world were saying in blogs and what they were reporting using translation, volunteers, all sorts of just really cool insight uh, into events around the world. Um, So I got involved with that and their advocacy project. Uh, Ended up attending some regional meetings in in the Middle East and North Africa for free expression activists. And when I moved back to the U.S. in 2007, about a year later, I ended up leveraging that connection to a job at the Berkman Klein Center. Um, and that's really how I got into the, the sort of digital space. Um, I worked there on a project called the Open Net Initiative. That was my primary project. And we were, it, it was a really incredible project that looked at government level internet filtering or internet censorship in, I think, 65 countries, something like that. Put out three books uh, during the time that the project was in existence. And um, when the Arab uprisings happened in 2011, I was in this kind of strange and unique position of being a, and I I hesitate to say Arabic speaker because my Arabic is really bad now, Um, (laughs) but I was, you know, amongst uh, the only people there who had any Arabic, any connections on the ground in Egypt. And suddenly I had professors, you know, sending me (laughs) 
press calls, you know, invitations to go on television to talk about what was happening there. So it was just this really strange time. And that's when I met EFF, where I still am. Yeah. So what I'm really interested in is how over the last couple of years, Jillian, and thank you so much for coming on. Um, I don't think that I knew that kind of that story myself. I've <laughs> been friends for a while. So that was um, that was kind of great. But what's so interesting to me is in kind of the intervening time that you've been at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the director of the Freedom of Expression Initiative, there has been kind of this change, at least in America, and you live in Berlin, but there's been this change in America of how exactly freedom of expression is talked about. So mm-hmm. free speech in the U.S. has become this mantle of of the right, um, which is the opposite of everything you are, I would, I would safely say. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I'm kind of interested how uh, you conceptualize kind of your life's work you know, with with kind of that that shift from underneath you of kind of what those what those principles mean and stand for. Sure. Well, so I think the first thing is that I didn't really come to free speech work from an American perspective. Um, I I mean, which is not to say I hadn't thought about it growing up in the U.S. But I was when I started this doing this work from Morocco, I was thinking about the censorship that existed there, which is really along three lines. I'll just name them because it's worth talking about. Um, there are three red lines there. You can't talk about the royal family. You can't talk about the col- uh, the occupation of the Western Sahara. Um, and you can't really get too far into criticizing Islam. And so, you know, that's stuff that I think everyone left and right would say, oh, yeah, no, that's really not okay, um, that level of censorship. And so through my work over the years, I've really been looking more, or in the beginning at least, I was looking more at authoritarian regimes, um, countries where the government had just total control over what people could say. And I would always look at the US as like, oh, but we're different. You know, we we have the First Amendment. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I didn't come to this from a First Amendment perspective. And so for me, there's never been that sort of, this sort of idealized version of free speech. I've been thinking of it more in terms of not trusting an authority um, and seeing the worst possible case scenario that can happen, which, you know, exists in a number of different countries around the world, and then going, you know what, this could happen anywhere. We know that it's happened in Europe not that long ago. Um, Why couldn't it come to the US? And so for me, it's always been about not trusting authority. It's never been about the whole, you know, I don't like what you have to say, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it thing. Um, And so in the past couple of years, I think, for me, my opinion on platforms has definitely changed, but my view on free speech and authorities really hasn't. Um, And I still think that censorship is a band-aid rather than a real solution to any societal problem. So when you say your opinion on platforms has changed, like spell that out. I'm interested (laughs) to hear what you think about that. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I I suppose it probably helps to just give a tiny history here, which is that um, I started looking at platform censorship or whatever you want to call it, uh, content moderation. I didn't have that term back then. Um, But 10 years ago, I put out a paper on this in 2010, not a a peer-reviewed paper, not a particularly rigorous one, but really just a case study of five different platforms that the Berkman Klein Center was kind enough to work with me and put out. um, Because mind you, my job title is project coordinator. Back then, I came to the conclusion pretty quickly that I didn't like the idea that these unaccountable tyrants, um, really tyrants, were making these decisions for the rest of us. It made me really uncomfortable. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's like maybe two years younger than me. I knew people who knew him. He just seemed so unqualified 
And this was before Facebook got even, you know, particularly big. I think they had a few million users at the time that I was starting to think about this. And so over the years, you know, I took that stance quite a bit that companies shouldn't regulate speech. And I think now at the scale that these platforms are at now, I think that it's it's no longer a justifiable position. I've shifted from that position to looking at ways that companies can be more accountable to users. Yeah. So when we talk about how they can be more accountable to users and you talk about kind of the idea of content moderation rising in people's minds, is there kind of something that you think is low-hanging fruit for content moderation and the platforms to answer to right off the bat um, versus something that's a lot more difficult? I, I'm just thinking kind of some of your work around nudity um, versus kind of some of the, the things around disinformation that are happening right now. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. The policies are complicated. And, you know, as much as I would like to see some of them change immediately, that's not the, the low-hanging fruit. I think the low-hanging fruit here is a couple things. The first one is publish your error rates. There's just absolutely no reason for companies to not be doing that. We know that they know them. We know that they keep track of them. And their decision there is really, I would guess, one born out of shame. <laughs> the second one, I think, is, you know, to make sure that every user has the right to appeal. It seems like low-hanging fruit. And yet, companies are not only making exceptions to it um, and not sharing what those exceptions are, but some companies are, just aren't even doing it. And I don't mean during the pandemic. I understand that we're living under exceptional circumstances at the moment, but this should still be the ideal. Um, and then I think the last one is something that I got from uh, Dave Wilner, actually, who you know, and who was one of uh, Facebook's policy, early policy architects, um, which is to utilize positive hashing. So we've got hashing as a tool. Basically, a hash is a unique fingerprint uh, that is attached to a piece of content so that, I mean, whatever you do with that hash is one thing, but basically it means that if a piece of content is identified to be deleted, for example, then that hash would then show up whenever that content is uploaded and the same action could be taken. And so right now, negative hashing is more what's used. Um, so the, the terrorism database, for example, that companies can put into that's run by the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, GiveCT, they have a database that companies can voluntarily put content into, um, and that is terrorist content that's been hashed by companies. But what positive hashing would do is kind of the reverse. Um, so rather than be used to take down content, it could be used to keep up content that has already been adjudicated. Or I, I know that that legal word there. But uh, so if let's say we've decided that it's okay to post the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen, which gets taken down on Facebook more often than you'd think, uh, it's a nude statue. If we decide that it's okay to post pictures of that, then you could hash that content so that every time that photo is uploaded, it would stay up rather than having to have content moderators make the same decision over and over again. Um, and that's something that I think is pretty low hanging fruit. And that companies have actually thought of for quite some time, but haven't done. And so just out of curiosity, like, why haven't they done it? Is it a question of just additional resources? Because it seems like it saves money on the back end if your poor content moderators don't ha have to constantly be adjudicating whether or not the statue can remain up. Yeah, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. It's, it's kind of the same. I have the same question for why don't companies publish their error rates? They've had them since the beginning. I think, you know, a lot of times... Uh, it really depends on the company, and I hope I hope we get into the, the nuances later, but I think sometimes these companies are just so big and decentralized in their decision-making that these ideas don't float to the top. Um, I think there's also just no profit motivation to it, and so 
the amount of effort or expenses that would go into building it, the companies would see that amount be you know better spent elsewhere. Um, but I'm just guessing. So as you kind of touched on there, a lot of these content moderation issues go back a really long way, like questions of nudity and whether platforms want to allow that, whether they're taking down things that people want to keep up. So I mean, I think the most recent iteration of this is the free the nipple hashtag campaign on Instagram. But recently, there's been sort of like the new cool thing on the block is disinformation and misinformation, which is obviously nominally uh, what what this podcast is about to some extent. So given that you've been working in this space for a while and have sort of seen a lot of different variations, I'm curious for your thoughts on what is similar or different here in the debates that are going on around disinformation and misinformation? And to what extent we're just like acting out the same debates about content moderation that people have been having for years and years and years, just with this sort of fun new disinformation spin on it? Yeah, I mean, actually, before you got to the end of the question, I already had an answer, which was, I don't think that this is new at all. I think that part of the problem is that we never learn from the rest of the world. So these disinformation debates were happening five, six, seven years ago in Eastern Europe, in other spheres of the world. Uh, India, we had just like, I was being asked questions about this on international panels three years ago. And I think what's different right now is that it affects Americans. And when it comes to Facebook in particular, although, you know, all of the US companies are pretty equally bad at this, I think Google's maybe the best, um, but still not great. Um, When it comes to these companies, they never learn from their errors in developing countries. So when it like hate speech in Myanmar, didn't learn anything from that. Now they're dealing with the same thing, but at a much larger scale in the US and Europe. Not only that, but they're also putting massive resources toward it in the US and Europe when they put minimal resources to it in Myanmar, even after the UN said flat out that Facebook had contributed to genocide there, or ethnic cleansing, I think was the term that they used. Nevertheless, I think really, not only does it echo previous content moderation debates, but it to me, and I think to anyone working on this at an international scale, it always just feels like like everybody in the U.S. is just a little bit behind the debate. Yeah, so let's just kind of talk about that, the kind of the way that in the last, I think really in the last 10 years, the internet has shifted and the the platforms have shifted from being um, centrally kind of powered by U.S. companies and the audience being very U.S.-centric to them truly being global powers, in fact, mostly outside the U.S. for their mm. user base. And I'm kind of um, I'm kind of interested. You said you wanted to get into the nitty-gritty. So I would love to hear how you think platforms deal with the problem of disinformation in particular or content moderation generally, like the different platforms deal with it within the different international, like within different countries and in the international space. Um, I have a tiny inkling of what you're going to say, but I'm wondering if it's going to match what what you actually end up saying. So I'm really glad that you asked this because one of the things that, that I've noticed over the past, I don't know, five, six years, what is time anymore, is that companies and I'm going to use Facebook as my primary example here because I know a lot more about, I've just researched them more, put it that way. But that doesn't mean that the other companies are necessarily doing better. What Facebook does when they enter another market is they typically hire folks at the highest levels, their policy teams, and their, I don't know what they call them internally these days, but they've got these, they've got their policy teams that make policy. And then they have these like 
government relations teams, and I think they still have policy in the title, but really their job is liaising with governments. And that's the folks in DC as well. So what they do is they hire people who are really close to the ruling government. Um, And so this means that if they go into India, they're usually hiring somebody who's close to the BJP. This is not a good thing, right? But it's at the same time, you know, it's to be able to please these governments. And so I think that a lot of times when they're dealing with any topic, but in particular disinformation, in these in different countries, they're reliant on their local teams, and those teams may or may not consult heavily with civil society. I know in some places they do, like for example, um, Abelia Kobiharis, who is in charge of I'm not sure how much of Africa, but a good portion of it. Um, she's she's great. She you know she reaches out to people. She really listens. I, I've known her since she worked at Yahoo, and I think she's one of my absolute favorites. But I've heard from civil society organizations in developing countries that a lot of times they're not being heard at all. Sometimes they're being, you know, sent in circles um, and it gets worse in, you know, in certain places. And so how are they dealing with disinformation more specifically? Again, I think they're waiting for it to be reported to them. And really when it came to India a couple of years ago and the concerns that were being shared from there, uh, when it came to the spread of certain things on WhatsApp, They really didn't listen until white people told them what to do. Um, And that's really the trouble that I have with Facebook in particular is I don't really think that they care about their global community that they're constantly citing at all. it's, It's just so apparent that the folks at the top of that company will only respond when political pressure in the United States, um, or sometimes occasionally public pressure, to be fair. Um, But it's typically political pressure in the US uh, that gets them to act. And you know, the the most apparent example that I can think of is vaccines. There's been a load of vaccine information circulating on Facebook and other platforms for, you know, years now to different consequences, right? Like it seems pretty clear that it um, had influences in parts of the U.S., you know, if you look at like the Orange County stuff, Washington State. Um, but in other parts of the world, this can mean even more dire consequences because there's really no other information that's happening either from the government or whatever. And so I think that it's, yeah, again, it's just really telling that they only act when I say white people, I guess really what I mean is Europe and the U.S. And even then, only a handful of countries in Europe have any kind of influence. So that gets to um, sort of broader questions of, I think you've, you've described content moderation as broken um, in this mm-hmm. piece that you wrote uh, for EFF in April 2019, um, which is, the title is, so uh, content moderation is broken, let us count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with that as a setup, like how is content moderation broken? Like what what are, how do you see as the, the different uh, ways that that breaks out the different components of that? Yeah, no, I I love that piece. And my colleague, Corinne, who I co-authored it with, she's the queen of titles. She came up with that one. How is it broken? I mean, (laughs) let us count the ways. So, so many different ways. I mean, I think the first one that I would say is that companies haven't seemed to really review their policies much at all over the years. And I'm actually not looking at the blog post, so I'm probably throwing my own thoughts in here as well. But one of the things that, that that really kind of concerns me is that in in researching for my book, I interviewed a lot of people who worked at companies early on, and a lot of them had doubts about their own choices back then. I'll just say that I'm, without naming names. Um, a lot of them said things like, you know, I don't know if I did the right thing. We were kind of like <laughs> just doing this on a wing and a prayer, um, or we didn't have consultations with civil society back then. And so I don't 
always know what specific policies they're talking about. But, you know, you can I, I know the history of these companies. And so you think about, like, say, Facebook banning nudity from the get go or YouTube choosing to geoblock in response to requests from foreign governments, you say, okay, these are decisions made by like, literally a handful of people. These were not major policy teams back then. And those decisions carry over to today. But in the meantime, there have been all of these other policy decisions, new policies written on top of that. And so, you know, I, I in my head, I kind of compare it to really bad code, you know, built over time where people just keep adding to it and it becomes this just massive things. I'm sure, you know, other people have better analogies than that. But they need really to do a full audit of all of that um, and really look at what policies are working. Let's put some research behind this. Um, and it feels like everything that they're doing is actually rather piecemeal um, without much external consultation or oversight. So that would be my first one. I think the next one is just transparency and accountability is pretty broken. Um, I've got big concerns about the way that companies do their transparency reporting. It's really good uh, on certain things. So for example, when it comes to user data requests from foreign governments, most of the companies do that pretty well. On the other hand, when it comes to, again, error rates, Reddit is the only company that I can think of that publishes that in full. I think Facebook publishes it for certain categories. I'm not sure other companies publish that at all. So I know I talked about that before, but also the, you know, the stuff that we've put into the Santa Clara principles on transparency and accountability and content moderation, santaclaraprinciples.org, that includes transparency reporting, but it also includes providing notice to users so that they know when and why they violated a rule. I mean, that's just so basic, but they're not doing it. And of course, appeals, the ability to get a, a bad decision overturned and your content reinstated. Um, so those are just a couple things. I, and I guess the one that I, you know, even I, as a U.S. person living in Europe, I often forget this as well, but it's really important. Language. A lot of these companies have full language interfaces in, you know, or full interfaces in many foreign languages. But when it comes to the people actually doing the content moderation work on the back end, there are a number of languages that are just completely uncovered. I, I'm not going to, please don't quote me on this, but I was on a call with Facebook not that long ago where I'm pretty sure that they said the number of languages for which they have content moderators was somewhere in like the 60s or 70s of language, like 60 something, 70 something. Um, that's nowhere near the number of languages uh, for people that actually use the platform. So that's another one that I think really needs to just be rethought from the ground up. Yeah. So I think that the Santa Clara principles are, you, that which you just mentioned, are a great place to to kind of to to come home they are um you went over them briefly um if you could kind of just give the backstory about what they are and how they kind of came about and the high points of basically what they say and i mean i kind of and i'll ask a follow up question after that which is really about kind of everything that you just described in the different policy teams and how long you individually as part of EFF and Berkman Klein have been involved with working with the platforms to make them better. And kind of Sarah Myers West, who I think was part of the Santa Clara principles. Yes. She has written extensively about kind of the cronyism of, of influencing this policy. And I would say that like you, me, a lot of others are to, to some extent part of that kind of what you see in the long term as the solution to that type of system of, you know, of a few nonprofits or a few journalists or a few people or powerful people having the ear 
of Sheryl Sandberg or various members of the policy team? Yeah. So let me start with how did the Santa Clara principles come about? So actually, this is um, I was trying to orchestrate a little meet cute between uh, activists or, or civil society groups and academics. I was at Sarah T. Roberts conference, uh, which was called, I think, All Things in Moderation. Yes. There's so many. Yes. OK. So many conferences that punned on moderation in the past couple of years. Huh. Um, so I was at that <laughs> conference and had dinner with some uh, some ac- some folks from academia and was saying, hey, you know, y'all are coming to this other conference in February. Uh, EFF's local. It was the Santa Clara one. And, uh, you know, why don't you come by the office and we could have a meeting? Um, and then I got sick and I couldn't go. But they did the meeting anyway. And then one of my colleagues texted me like late that night and was like, you're not going to believe this. Like we not only did we have your meeting, but we also came up with this set of principles. And I was like, what? Uh, so never have I, you know, before felt so sad to have missed something. It was, it was some of the worst FOMO I've ever experienced. Um, but over the next few weeks, we looked, you know, we worked through a Google Doc together uh, and and revised and built out these principles. And yeah, it was um four organizations plus four individual academics who wrote these. Um, and then a few more people, obviously, like such as myself, chimed in on the revisions. Yeah, I was just really, really proud of how that happened. And I think that, you know, that we've gotten some criticism from inside the community about things that we missed. And that's completely fair. And that's why we're, we have an open call right now for submissions and have gotten quite a few results. But I think just the really awesome thing that came out of it was that spontaneous collaboration that has now led to this um, really informal coalition uh, of, of different groups and academics that now I'm happy to say is like 150 members from more than 40 countries. It's really, you know, mostly a mailing list and some calls occasionally. And, but it, it's just wonderful to have finally, you know, have those different kinds of groups coming together in that way. Um, so I think that answers that. Um, and then, so how long have I been in contact with companies? Um, this is another cute story. Back in 2010, there was this bug, or at least they said it was a bug. Facebook had literally blocked the word Palestinian from being put into the creation of I remember of page. that. Yep. <laughs> so random. Um, but you couldn't create a page with Palestinian. So I ran some tests and, you know, I was like using the different, I think the, the, I forget what the group was called, but it was actually something incredibly non-political, like Palestinian music club or something. And so I started playing around with words, trying to create pages to see what would happen. And you know, deduce that it was in fact the word Palestinian that was causing it. So I wrote a blog post about it because I didn't know anyone at Facebook. And within 24 hours, somebody from Facebook had emailed me um, and was like, hey, we saw your blog post. This was a bug. We're so sorry that this happened. You can blog about it if you want. You can let you know people know that you heard from us. And hey, by the way, like feel free to email me anytime. I'm not going to say who that was because he was actually quite shy uh, to speak to me for my book. So I, I want to respect his privacy. He's no longer at the company. But it was the start of a very bizarre and lasting, (laughs) one of my longest relationships, let's say. Um, So I've been in touch with Facebook's policy teams for a decade now. And um, back then, most of the people that I was talking to were like under 25 male Stanford grads. And that's obviously changed over time. You know, I've kind of talked to really people at every level of the company with the exception of Mark Zuckerberg, which is also, you know, I'm, I'm... little sad that I haven't been invited to any of those gatherings. But it's interesting. Um, and I, you know, of course, at EFF, uh, I also added a whole bunch of other companies to that roster that I hadn't previously really worked with much at Berkman. Um, so I talk to, you know, Twitter, um, YouTube less often these days, but it still happens. 
there are some companies like Reddit that are just incredibly forthcoming and reach out to me, um, you know, to, to ask questions or share things. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a fascinating experience, which brings me to your other question. And let me just say, since you mentioned Sarah Myers West here, she's just the coolest and one of my absolute favorite people. (laughs) She's amazing. One of my favorite people to work with. Yeah. As you said, she's talked about the cronyism that exists here and, I would say, you know, how do we fix it? I've been trying and I'm not sure that there is an easy fix. So let me first talk about the progress that we've made because I want to say this and I am tempted to call out the people by name, but I won't do it. Um, Back in 2015, I brought together staff from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and I want to say one other company, but I'm blanking on it at the moment. And I brought them together with about, let's say about 20 people all from civil society organizations, mostly in the global South. And this was a private closed door meeting and, you know, heavily facilitated. But the idea behind the meeting was to solve this problem because most of the groups that I invited had struggled to get in touch with Facebook uh, or, you know, the other companies as well, but it was usually Facebook. And a lot of them said that they were told to go through me or to go through Access Now or some of the other big organizations that had those contacts. And they were frustrated by it. And so in this meeting, the two men who were there from Facebook, again, like relatively young Stanford grads, um, they flat out said, well, no, we, we would really prefer that, uh, you know, that these small organizations from the global south go through Jillian or other other people like that, you know, because we just we don't have the capacity to vet them. This was 2015. You know, by then they sure had enough staff to vet whatever organization wanted to talk to them. It was, you know, purely out of convenience. And mind you, I don't I don't take money from these companies. So they're telling groups to go through me and relying on my free labor instead of building out a customer service department. just want to pause on that for a second. Nevertheless, that meeting was actually successful because we did force their hand. It was a two-day meeting. That was on day one. So we forced their hand into at least accepting those 20 groups into their fold. And over time, that expanded. Not, And I, I can't take credit for anything but that one meeting because they, those folks were really powerful in doing this. And other groups such as the... Um, uh, Next Billions Network have have furthered this work over the past few years, but it's still not good enough. And the really frustrating thing is that often folks from the Global South are sent to the local regional offices, which can be really difficult and problematic for them, especially if they're, say, a feminist or a queer group and they're being told to talk to this person who's like really close with their right-wing government. Or Palestinian groups that are situated inside of Israel so like uh, Hamna, for example, um, they're a Palestinian group from Haifa. Uh, they're forced to talk to the Israeli office instead of the office for the, red- the rest of the Arabic speaking um, Middle East and North Africa. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's not really a language problem. It's a political problem. And it's quite, yeah, quite frustrating for them. So I think that there's still a lot of work to be done here um, to get things up on an equal level. I still see that these companies reach out to the American organizations first and they expect us to represent um, other groups. But, you know, I also want to put a little bit of blame on civil society. And I, I know that, you know, there are a lot of folks trying to do the exact same thing that I'm doing, you know, from U.S. groups. But there's also from some of the older, let's say older folks, older orgs, I don't know which I'm trying to say here, but there is kind of a possessiveness that I've seen from some organizations that they want those relationships above all else. They want to be the ones to talk to the companies um, and they don't see the problem with 
being the middleman or middle person. And that, that does really bother me. So I think that in order to fix it, we need to make sure that we're elevating above all else, um, the, the voices of the folks from the global South, um, from marginalized communities in the global North, uh, et cetera. So there's there's so much there, and I'm I'm sad that we won't have time to <laughs> pick it apart to to the extent that it deserves because that's fascinating. So with that on the table, let's then talk about one solution that um, that you've actually been quite critical of, um, which is the Facebook Oversight Board. Oh, um, yeah. And I'm sure Kate, um, our listeners know, has done an enormous amount of scholarship on this. Um, but so Jillian, so you've been pretty critical of the board as this kind of marquee effort that Facebook has rolled out to make its content moderation systems more transparent, more accountable, more open to users. So just to start off, why do you think the board isn't going to work? Mm. Um, so I feel a little bad because I was saying this before the board came about, but let me assure you I was doing that because I knew that they would do exactly what I'm about to say, which is um, you can't have a global oversight board for your global community with, that's 25% Americans and mostly lawyers. That's just not going to work. Um, that's true. You called that very early on. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. I just, I saw, I, you know, I, I, based on all the history right there, I knew that that would happen. It's exactly what happened. Um, and, you know, they felt the need to kind of play both sides with the U.S. folks, but not with the global folks. So there's kind of an imbalance of um, politics, an imbalance of culture. But really, there's also like only three people on the entire oversight board who have real experience with content moderation. And those three people, none of them are from the U.S. By and large, they're looking at people with a different skill set, and I would have to really question why. I, you know, I know a little bit of the background of this, but it doesn't make sense to me. Um, it just sounds like a, a Mark Zuckerberg line, and you know, I, I've said this many times over the years, but I really don't think he knows how to do this job. I don't think he's qualified for it, and so that's the biggest concern that I have. But I think I also just, I also just don't think that this is going to solve the problem. The problem is at a massive scale. And this is going to, even if, even if they, you know, upped the scale of what they could do, even if they were handling a thousand cases a year, that still wouldn't be nearly enough. Yeah. So I take, I, I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, it's 82 pages long and I think literally like a few journalists and only my mom has read it, but the, the, and she's, she, my, my mom is very cute. She actually did read it. Um, she was like, this is her like review is like, this is a comprehensive, but very long read. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, thanks mom. But the piece that I put out that kind of summarized all of this stuff, and I think I have a lot of your com your complaints in there because I definitely heard them when I wrote about the oversight board. I kind of, I think that you're completely correct in, in kind of, we talked as the board members are being announced, the board trends pretty old. It is 25% um, American in for a, you know, a company whose users are only 9% American. And there are a lot of there are a lot of issues there. I don't know if I I mean, I think that everything you bring up is is correct. I think I've now talked about 10 different people that are on the board of 20. So that's a pretty, pretty good ratio. Um, people seem to really be describing it as something that's coming together on its own. And they really have could not give a fig what Facebook wants them to do. And they're talking about it like it's their own motivation and they are going to be not just kind of a textualist um, interpreter of the content moderation rules that Facebook lays out, but really maybe a, like a consciousness of freedom of expression and safety for the world. 
I mean, does that give you any, I mean, you only have my word on this, but like, do you think that that's possible or do you think that like, that there's still just so much that there's just no way that this is going to be able to really have the effect that it wants to have? Well, I guess I think that their perspective is fair and I would probably share it if I were on the board, but I don't think that it's realistic given the rest of the board's makeup. And there's some re- there's there's a couple problematic people on the board too that I'm just kind of appalled by but that I'm not going to get into names with at the moment. So, yeah, I mean I can see how they would have that perspective and I I believe that they're going to do their best to further those goals, but I don't see it having an impact when placed against the current membership. Um, and again, we haven't seen the other 20 yet, right? So uh, that might make a huge difference. If there's no Americans on the other 20, I might end up thinking differently. But right now, I just I just don't see the diversity that's needed for that to actually have a real effect. I mean, in my mind, it's not just the makeup of the board that's the problem, the limited scope of just dealing with only takedown material, um, mm. the limited impact on, you know, some of the ways in which Facebook will actually, you know, listen to the authority of the board. I think all of those are problems. If you were going to kind of structure something along the Santa Clara principles, which were very much kind of thought about as this board was constructed, but if you were going to be like kind of taking the Santa Clara principles and putting them into action, how much different would it be than the Facebook oversight board? Would it be a variation on what they ended up coming up with or would it be just whole cloth, something different? Oh, I mean, I'm not sure that it would be an either or for me. I mean, I think that the the implementation or the requirement of the Santa Clara principles or the elements contained within plus the oversight board is how I'd see it rather than one or the other. So let me just say that. And I do think that there is, I mean, EFF is, you know, exploring this and we've talked about it in the European context. I do think that there is potential to regulate some of these things without, without getting into intermediary liability issues. Then in terms of rethinking the board, I mean, I, I do see issues with the bylaws, but again, like my, my concerns are more with the makeup of the board right now than they are with the actual structure of the board. Because I do believe what you said, that given the right makeup, it, it could be possible to, to do really fascinating things with this, or at least to kind of be more of a oppositional force against Facebook. But again, that's still dependent on Facebook actually taking into account or actually implementing the things that the board comes up with. And I guess that that's, that and the makeup of the board are my two major concerns. Yeah. One of my big concerns, I think one of the things that, and you brought this up so early on in this conversation and you've, it's come up, um, it came up when we talked about the Santa Clara principles a few minutes ago, and it's kind of coming up now is accountability. Um, one of the things I actually think this is the oversight board is an interesting kind of, um, I don't know, like, look at what this hand is doing while we do this other thing with the, our other hand, mm. um, pick your pocket with the other hand. <laughs> Um, that there's, there's definitely, I think that there's definitely that possibility of the oversight board. I think that that's a link and I hope that that's not what's happening. And I don't think that will be the fault of the people on it, by the way. I think that that was maybe part of the design of the project or for some people, not even all of the people who worked on it. But one of the things is that like they throw in this word accountability, but it's actually not accountability. Like 
there's no one like the oversight board members are not picked by the users. Like they are not picked by the users to like basically enforce and hold like Facebook accountable. They're picked by, you know, first they, now they've been picked by Facebook and the oversight board. And someday they'll just be picked by the oversight board itself. But at no point are like everyday users part of that. You know, all they really are is this really, really tiny, thin stream of accountability that if my post comes down and it was wrongly taken down, it will go and it goes through this appeal process. You will like Facebook has agreed that they'll reinstate it, which the board has said that they're just going to pick very high level questions. And so like it's actually not a question about kind of accountability at all. At the very best, it's more one of transparency. What do you think about that? How can we actually make a more accountable system in which users have direct or indirect input into this process. To me, the original sin was having Facebook pick the people because we know how dynasties work. Um, <laughs> and again, like I don't want to get into specific names and I, I even feel like EFF would not be super thrilled at me picking this apart, but the, the choices are all about respectability politics. Facebook didn't choose, or they chose maybe two people who are outspoken who might use an F-bomb occasionally on a panel. Like I, there's nobody like me or Dia Kayali getting picked for this because we don't, you know, we don't mince words. And that's part of the problem with this is that you don't have anyone. And I, I don't mean like people who are going to leak stuff behind an NDA. That's certainly not the point. I don't do that, but you don't have anyone who's going to really call Facebook out. And that's what infuriates me because this is going to have a trickle down effect. And so I think that this is going to be pretty dynastic and we're going to see this like, we're just going to see this kind of uh, milk toast oversight board over the years. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I will counter that with is that these individuals had their own reputations and their own pretty illustrious reputations and to become shills for the, for Facebook would be terrible for their own legacy and their own image. And so they have somewhat like basically they have, they have a incentive from that perspective. I would say oh, that, yeah. yeah, that that's not, that's not nothing. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, in all of my talks with them, they all are kind of like, I like my first role was like, this isn't just like a Potemkin village. This isn't just this imaginary thing. No, no, no. And I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I'm not saying that they're going to shill for Facebook. I think that they will act independently. But I think that there's still extraordinary value in having like a quarter of the oversight board be people who are some of Facebook's biggest, most vocal and accurate critics. And I think that without that, we're missing... I just, I don't know how to put a finger on it, but we're really missing something there. And if it doesn't trickle down over the years and we don't have those people joining, or for that matter, people with real concrete and deep expertise in the subject matter, that's my other concern. Because sure, yeah, you can weigh in on these decisions, but if you don't understand the underlying systems behind them, then what do you really, you know, what are you really bringing to the table? Um, I, you know, I mean, I think sure, anyone can make these Anyone could make choices about content. Anyone could weigh in on that. It certainly helps to have the backgrounds of the current oversight board, for sure. And I think that there's, you know, obviously, as you said, some really articulate and illustrious names on there. But yeah, I just, I think that, like, I want to see a real user on there. I bet some of these people don't even have Facebook profiles. I want to see a sex worker on there. I want to see people who are really impacted by these decisions on there. 
so yeah, I mean, that's one thing. And then I think in terms of like how we could actually, so that was the, the original question, right? Is like, how could we solve this problem truly? You know, I don't know that we're ever going to get the voting, <laughs> a voting system in place that all users could or would participate in. But I do think that companies could get way more user feedback and in more robust ways. Like I get little advertiser surveys all the time on Twitter, um, but Twitter never asks me what I think about their policies. Why? Yeah, that's a great point. That's actually, that's like a really great point. There could be so much more, like I have always said that I don't think this is a direct democracy question. I think this is a participatory democracy question. Yes. Speaking of uh, concrete expertise in the subject matter, uh, as you mentioned, you have a book coming out. Um, So can you just like tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Okay. This is my first time really talking about it on the air. Um, I have been, (laughs) thanks. Um, I've been writing this for, working on it for almost three years now. um, And I submitted my manuscript and I'm almost done or will be done with the edit soon. Um, It is called Silicon Values. I think that we have not come up with the subtitle yet. And it covers kind of the history of certain policy decisions through the lens of activism and um, mass demonstrations, starting with Egypt and Tunisia in 2010-11, kind of following the course of time to now. And it will be out with Verso in, I think, March of 2021. Be safe and well in Berlin, Jillian. Thank you for taking so much time to talk to us. Well, thank you both and stay safe on the East Coast. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.